Good evening, grave robbers, and welcome back to the television graveyard. We are your TV necromancers, Lara Prince and Noah Houlihan. We have come here tonight to examine the spirits of past television shows, to find out which ones could be resurrected, should be resurrected, and which should stay doomed. This is a podcast in which we will analyze the history, the hype, and the aftermath of shows that ran only one season, or only one episode. With me, as always, is TV's Noah Houlihan. I just told you how you could cheat on your taxes and get away with it. Welcome to Push Nevada. Woohoo! We are doing Push Nevada from 2002. Yes. It also felt really good to do the intro completely straight, which I hadn't done in a while. Yeah. (laughs) It's um. very true. So, uh, I, I'm going to just say, before we get like started, uh, let's pour one out. Okay. As <laughs> I, I lifted my drink because I figured you were going to talk. Yeah, we've been doing, the, we've had a bad habit of having a preamble before we put, pour one out. So let's pour one out immediately. What All are you right. drinking? Uh, I'm drinking the Jim Proof Rock. Okay. It is a cup of tea because he does not drink coffee. You're right, um, he drinks tea. He drinks tea with rainbow fruit leather garnish to symbolize the peyote belt. Ah. We'll talk about the peyote belt in a little bit. Excellent. Uh, I'm drinking the blood oranges everywhere. There's a, a <laughs> part where um, there's a newspaper headline that says blood oranges everywhere. And uh, I'm going to get into a little bit deeper about the blood oranges because I got a fun story about them. Uh, but it's orange triple sec. Okay. Which was my orange. And then I added uh, Kool-Aid to it. And hopefully I get the picture up this time because I haven't been posting pictures. Uh, the idea was I was going to put Kool-Aid in it to make it like a blood orange to make it red. Mm-hmm. When I took the picture, it looks super orange. <laughs> it looks blood orangey at this angle. The camera made it look orange. I don't know why. It might be the color theory of we use that purple binder as a background. Maybe, maybe. So. Let's get into this, because I have a lot I have to get into before we can get into this. All right, so we start with, this actually, very interestingly, it was just like Heat Vision and Jack and a couple other shows. We start with a known actor introducing the show. Well, before we even get into that, I think I have to give a little bit of a preamble here. Well, this Ben Affleck will give us this preamble, actually. Yes. Uh, this is a game slash show. Not a game show, but it is a game and a show. Uh, ben Affleck, who is the executive producer for this show, explains to us... I'm Sean Bailey. And I'm Ben Affleck. We're the executive producers of Push Nevada. You're about to watch a drama about a massive conspiracy. Jim Proofrock, a government agent, is about to dive headfirst into a mystery. And you can go along for the ride. But unlike any show on television, this ride is for real. In the first scene of the episode you're about to watch, a large amount of money is stolen in Push Nevada. In every episode, there are hints which point to a specific piece of information, a clue. Just watch the show, find the hints, and gather the weekly clues. You need all the clues to solve the puzzle, and you could win the missing money. But you don't have to play the game to love the show. You just have to love a good mystery. So here we go with the first episode of Push Nevada. It's called The Amount. And that's your first hint. Now, before we, like, super get into this, there's a few things I want to say. 
This is going to be one of those shows where I have seen it live. Yes. And this is a new thing for Laura who, to experience for the first time. Yes. Uh, so I am well aware of my nostalgia goggles for this particular property. I also want to, at this point, commend Laura for watching this because the rip that we watched on YouTube totally breaks the Nightmare Ned rule of it has to be high quality for us to watch it. I believe the links I provided during the previous episodes are not even the best versions. We found better versions later. Yeah. Uh, with, through some digging. So if you want to give this show a watch, uh, instead of searching Push Nevada, search for the channel Emerald Badger. It's about 250 videos of this really cute dog. Lukey. And then all the episodes of Push Nevada in G versus E for some reason. So if you want to give this a shot, that's where you look. Also, there's dog videos. What more could you possibly want? Right. So each episode has one clue. And I'm going to say we're going to reveal what the clues are in each episode. So if you want to play, you're not going to figure it out from the podcast. You'd have to actually watch the show. So... Go ahead and watch and let me know if you find the clues on your own. Now let's jump in. I want to point out that when we uh, watched my high school nostalgia series, we watched beloved cult classic Firefly. And when we watched your high school nostalgia series, it's Push Nevada. I choose not to respond to that comment. So we start off with a heist. (laughs) Well, I, I would like to start off with the exact words you said. We start with Rudy Giuliani in an ice bath. <laughs> yes. Those were the words you use as a naked man is sitting in an ice bath. We actually start with the title of the episode, The Amount. The Amount, which is your first clue. Uh, but Rudy Giuliani, but not, not like that, not really Rudy Giuliani, just a guy who looks like him, shivers in a bathtub full of ice and... A nameless person says, you're ready, let's go, after taking his temperature. Yes. We see a vault, and we see a security guy watching, like, a full Ozymandias watchman monitor setup. They outwit a heat vision camera. Uh, and then the naked, the guy who's in the ice bath is naked to help fool the infrared camera. He goes full Shawshank and crawls through the sewer and finds a car who's clearly there to pick him up, ask, who asks naked Andy Dufresne to show him everything and then lets him get in the backseat. And we find out it was the vault of the Versailles Casino. Yes. So we start off with a casino heist. Yes, a naked man doing a casino heist. Uh, I would like to just point out that I remember reading a book on how to uh, write a play, or not a play, like a movie, Mm -hmm. and it said it should start with either a heist, a murder, or hot girls in in bikinis in a hot tub. And I like that this starts with a heist and the opposite of hot girls in a hot tub. (laughs) And then we meet uh, James Prufrock and his blonde secretary, Grace. Yes. And she plays a voicemail for James from his ex-wife, who requests what we can assume is an alimony check to be sent to a hotel. Right. And a man is laughing in the background. So whoever she's with, like she's with another dude asking for her alimony check. Right. And 
Grace informs James that she has sent the check and it was signed for by his ex-wife personally. So like the check that the ex-wife is claiming was not sent was and was signed for. Yes. And then we get James Prufrock gets a fax from Silas Bodnick. Yes. And it shows an accounting error at the Versailles Casino. Mm-hmm. He calls the number on the fax. Silas Bodnick picks up. And they have an argument. And then the cold open ends with... Somebody specifically sent this fax to my office, so by law I'm required... Throw it away. It was a mistake. Well, sir, that brings me to what I'm calling in regards to. It seems there is a sizable accounting error. I don't care how hard up you are, I don't want your business. Do you hear me? If you ever call here again, I'll, I'll throw a caller ID on you. I'll come to your house. You'll wish you never called. Get it, Yahoo. Goodbye. End of story. No. Not end of story. Grace, how far away is Push Nevada? And we find out James works for the IRS. Yes. And so it like zooms out and shows the IRS and then comes in and Jim Proofrock, he can't leave anything well enough alone. He can't just accept that it's a mistake. He has to go check it out. And then the theme song plays. And let me tell you, this theme song still slaps. Yeah, I will say the music in this show is good. I remember, because uh, this I was in high school during this, and uh, not only was I super into this show, I was into this other thing called e-fedding. What? An e-fed is Oh, a, okay. <laughs> is when you create a wrestling persona and cut promos on a message board. And then the commissioner writes matches for you. And uh, based on how good your promos are, you end up being champion. And my character, Cloud Striker, uh, (laughs) was in fact the champion. And his theme music was the theme music from Push Nevada. (laughs) I know, I'm really cool. I'm really cool. I sound like a big old dweeb on our podcast and then you tell stories about your childhood and I feel so much better about my social life. Yeah, and let it be known that I promised a really good story and that was not it. Oh, thank God. There's going to be a really good story at the end of all of this. Don't worry. So the next thing we see is James driving alone. But before, we, there's one small thing I have to say here. Yeah. Uh, there is a website hidden in the opening theme. Yes. I don't believe you caught it the first time. I did not. You do catch them later. And if you go to the website, it very clearly just simply tells you the amount is $1,045,000. The money is real. Yeah. So if you caught that the website was there, you already got your first clue. Good on you. James is driving alone, but he's on his cell phone with Grace. And... They talk about how rigged casinos are. 
And Grace is clearly in love with James Prufrock. Yes, yes, that old trick. I think you could win. He's also 29 and has his own secretary. Yes. Which is also like, what does he actually do? How does he have a personal secretary? He's a federal agent for the IRS. Yeah. Knowing how administration works, there's no way one agent has his own secretary. True. Uh, and then Prufrock's phone starts to die, and he asks her... Oh, Grace, uh, my phone's dying. Did you, did you remember to put the charger in the... Uh, Grace? The phone dies. I want to talk about this. Yeah. James Prufrock is a man who has his... Per- he's 29, mm-hmm. so he's a grown man! He is a grown. He grown. And he has his secretary write and send his alimony checks... And then his phone dies because she didn't pack his charger for him. She messed up. Next, is she going to forget his Lunchables? Like, Yeah. Oh, my God. She got the turkey ones instead of the ham ones that he likes. So, right as his phone dies, the car overheats, his cell phone is dead, and he's just alone, surrounded by desert. You live in New Jersey. You are never more than 20 miles from a diner. I am never more than... A reasonable hour walk away from something. From a Wawa. Just something in general. Yeah. Or I'm on a road where someone will help me. Yeah. Nevada is just desert. So a truck comes by and James waves down the truck and BRB, the trucker, lets him in. Yes. And there's beautiful blonde pinup photos Of all the same woman in BRB's car. It's BRB's wife. Mm -hmm. And they talk about where they met. Like, he met her in Push. And he met her at Sloman's Slow Dance Bar. Yes. And he's going to take him to Job. Job is the mechanic. Yes. And he mentions that... You're lucky. The side of Death Valley doesn't get much traffic. And he's going to take him to an honest man, Job the Mechanic. Yes. Uh, Job is a very honest man. Basically, they pull up and BRB is like, hey, this is Jim Proofrock. His car broke down. And Job's like, all right, I'll give you a tow. It'll be $10 and then I'll see what I can do. And Jim's like, really? Thanks. And in the background. Is a shivering man. Is a shivering man in a parka and like one of those fuzzy ear nerd hats. Yeah. And he's shivering and Jim's like, what's his problem? And Job goes, he's just cold. Yeah. But the heat would kill a man. In four hours. Four hours. hours. What? It's mysterious. Okay. Uh, Then they find a motel where James can stay. Yes. And it looks... I get like hardcore BRB, BRB, sorry, hardcore B and B vibes. Like more than a motel, this kind of looks like a bed and breakfast. Yeah. And it looks like someone's house. His room is in the East Wing and the North Wing is forbidden. And it's $25 a night. Yeah. But like an, like a B and B, the landlady kind of gives him like a little interview first. And that's how we find out he's 29 Divorced, but employed. He works for the Internal Revenue Service. And the room is really nice for $25. Like, 
$25 room is a scary phrase. Yeah. And even in 2002, it would be a scary room. Uh, but it's beautiful, and Prufrock kind of can't believe his luck. And as he walks by, there's a dollar amount on the wall. Dollar sign, one comma, oh, four, five. I've seen it. Yeah, it, it should be noted that it's not on the wall. It's on his door, and it's the the number of his, like, hotel room. It changes from whatever it was originally to one comma, oh, four, five. Yeah. And Laura picks it out immediately and it's like, ah, that's the amount. Mm-hmm. My next note is, I've seen it. Then we go to Sloman's Slow Dance Bar, and he is handed, Jim Prufrock is handed a white rose by the Mater D. Yeah, you'll need it. He orders a non-alcoholic beer. Yeah. A beautiful woman sits alone, Jim is transfixed by her, and she shows up next to him. And her name is Mary. And she immediately picks out that, like, he's a newcomer, and she offers him some advice. Yes. Like... Let's just talk about this whole thing. Say what the advice was, and then I'll groan. If you're going to stay here and push Nevada, take your time. Take careful steps. Why do you say that? Because there's a secret, Jim. And like all the best secrets, it's not quickly told. This whole interaction sounds like a point-and-click adventure game. Yeah. Because, like, he sits down, this girl shows up, and then he's just working his way through the dialogue tree to get all the, like, needed informations. Yeah. It's like, I'm looking for Silas Botnick. Do you know him? And then she looks over at Silas Botnick, looks back and goes, never heard of him. And then all this, like, secret stuff about, like, you know, it's very slowly told and all this other stuff. And then... Jim opens his inventory and uses his flower yeah, so he can get a dance. Like, this really feels like a point-and-click adventure. Absolutely. We are at the secret of Monkey Island right now. Uh, she declines the rose and says he works too fast for her. Yes. Uh, my next note is, this show is slow. <laughs> well, my first note is, you move too fast for me. And I said, you walked over in slow motion. Everyone is fast for you. So they get to Versailles Casino because that's where Jim thinks he'll find Silas Bodnick. And the head waiter at the casino or like the host. Can I help you, monster? Hello, bonjour. Can I help you, sir, monsieur? He speaks like mangled Franglish. <laughs> because yes. it's based or it's themed around like the Vers- the Palace of Versailles. Yeah. So it, it makes me laugh because I you always love mangled other languages. Oh, yeah. Can I help you, monster? Uh, so, Silas Bodnick rushes through the casino floor screaming and essentially yells, I'm Silas Bodnick. Yeah, he basically does yell his own name into the phone. Like a Pokemon. Yeah, it's Bodnick. What the hell is your problem? <laughs> and Jim hears him and starts to follow. And we meet Bodnick's secretary, Ginger. And Ginger did not send the facts that Bodnick is upset about. Yeah. They can't find who sends, who sent the facts at all. No. Uh, Ginger logged it and she didn't send it. Bodnick claims he didn't send it. Um, Jim's like, I work for the IRS. And Ginger goes, I, I'm a head out. 
and we never see her again. Uh, Bodnik first lightly threatens Jim and then just starts screaming in his face. Uh, my next note is how weirdly shot this show is. Because I think this is the first time I noticed like a very weirdly framed shot. Yes. It's framed somewhat appropriately for photography because Jim's in the third. But it's very weirdly shot for film. Yeah. Because it's like Jim is in the third and then the door with the longhorns over is in the other third. Yes. Almost like we're supposed to equally focus on that. Yeah. I was looking for another clue during this time and I don't believe there was one. I don't think there was. Uh, But... There's a lot of shots like that, and there's also a lot of, like, 1966 Batman crooked Yes, in this. Get it? Because they're crooked. But the person most often framed in that kind of shot is Jim himself. I Hmm. took notes on that. Um, The next thing here is that Jim goes on this, like, hero rant... Mm-hmm. About the nobility of taxes. The nobility of the IRS. You know what, Mr. Bodnick? I am not in the most popular line of work. And usually I don't stoop to defend my vocation to liars, forgers, and cheats, but I am willing to today so that you understand just how serious I am. You know how this country works, how it runs, money. That's how teachers get paid. Streets get paved. Do you know why taxes are higher than they should be? Why they are a burden to honest people? Do you? Fraud. You. You, sir, are the reason decent people shoulder the albatross of an inequitable tax burden. Wealthy, greedy cheats and thieves. I can plainly see you are one of those. Feels Adam West Batman-y. It's insane. Like that ridiculous over-earnest. I'm the true hero here. The tax man. Making sure that I'm standing up for the little guys that that pay their taxes. And then uh, we... They finish their confrontation and then Jim is doing some research. My next notes. Jim is hot in glasses. Whatever. Uh, Jim is being watched. Yeah. Because he calls, his cell phone is still, I guess, charging or broken or whatever. Or he doesn't have his phone charger because Mommy Grace didn't pack it for him. And so he calls his supervisor from his hotel room. Yes. And we see a guy in a suit go, record the call and notify Waller. Mm Mm-hmm. And Jim is talking to Ira Glassman who is his boss. And Ira, he kind of just recaps the whole show so far for Ira. Yeah. And then he's like, I'm going to do more research. I'm going to go to the library. Yes. Which I have a joke about how that's how I handle situations. That's that's why I said it in that exact cadence. I just want to point out how much Jim Prufrock looks like me when he wears his glasses. He looks a lot like me when he's wearing glasses. I forget what unflattering thing I said about him. Because <laughs> uh, I, I remember I said he looked like Andrew Garfield bred with someone less attractive than Andrew Garfield. <laughs> yeah, I could see some Andrew Garfield in him too. 
Uh, I'd also like to say that I took a lot of notes for Push Nevada because I wanted to make sure I got everything I wanted out. I usually don't take too many notes. Laura's the note taker and I just kind of react and stuff like that. And then like that's our different dynamics. I realize now why I don't usually take notes because I have no idea what I'm talking about. These are my notes. IRS are heroes. My pants is everlasting. (laughs) Hey, he's a bi-villain. Glasses with grace. Time to go to the library. Uh, Glasses with grace. I think he might... He calls the IRS and he calls Grace yes. to be connected to Ira Glassman. Oh, uh, maybe. I was. I also had like a little bit of a theory that he was only wearing his glasses when he talked to Grace, which is later disproven. He also isn't wearing his glasses in the car. Yeah, where you think you'd need them most. I had the feeling he was usually using them to read because we usually only see um, them in like library. That makes sense. Or research. So he goes to the library and into the microfiche. Because mm-hmm. you know what cool heroes do? Microfiche. Yeah, she's like Quail Man. Ugh. In mid-1983, the town was on the verge of social collapse. Yes. Crime was at an all-time high. Widespread poverty. Lots of problems. In June 1984, the Versailles Casino is bought by the Watermark Corporation. Mm-hmm. In 1985... The per, the per capita income goes from $12,000 annually to $45,000 annually, which is a giant increase. And $45,000 annually is actually very, very high. Right. Which is why everyone can afford to let things go for a song. Like, mm-hmm. everyone's making a lot of money, so that's why Job's like, ah, $10 toe. Grace is contacting the gaming board, because they're in Nevada. Yes. And... Uh- He's trying to pull all... And she also is asked to pull all files on Watermark. Yes. Ira tells Jim, Oh, I don't know. Doesn't that like a big deal? Come home tonight. We'll get Arby's. Yeah, Arby's, Jim. Arby's. Nothing is going to get you home from assignment more than your dweeb boss. Yes. Inviting you to Arby's. Uh, so uh, the two quick things I want to point out is when he's looking at the microfiche, uh, he sees something that says pushtimes.com. Yes, he does. I will explain that at the end of this episode. And uh, Ira is then, when he hangs up with Jim, is very clearly being threatened to yes. bring Proofrock home. By two shadowy figures. Yes. And there's a note, uh, Proofrock goes out at night to take a walk. And there's a note on his car. Mr. Proofrock, just a loose hose, no charge, Job. Yeah, free. And like... So then Jim goes for a walk, and he notices a couple embracingly, passionately in their bedroom window, and then another one. And he kind of goes like, huh, 9.15, everybody in town. My note says everyone bones down at 9.15. Yeah. But I think it's worded more delicately. He says, oh, there must be something in the water. Yes. But it is 9.15, and everyone's boning around him. Uh, so then he goes to Sloman's, and he Love wants... That. He looks for Mary, and he's told, try the VIP room. Whoever she's talking to skedaddles immediately. And you can drive the conversation about their conversation. So Jim is infatuated with this woman, and he tries to work his best moves on her. And he goes, what can you do for me? 
Well, I can tell you that, generally speaking, and this is legally permissible for me to say, though very frowned upon, it's only worth it for the IRS to prosecute if the underreported amount is more than 35% of the total income. So, if you want to underreport, you can do so comfortably, up to 35%. I just told you how to cheat on your taxes. And this pickup line does not work. I, she hasn't reported a transaction in years, is what she tells him. Yes. And he's like, well, what do you do? And she goes, I'm in the friends business. I could use a friend. A friend or a dance. Both too much to ask. And that's when he tells her how to underreport her taxes. She asks him to promise to leave Push if she dances with him. Don't stare at mountains you can't climb, Jimmy. I just tropes. <laughs> I speak in tropes. Um, I'm going to be so annoyed by this is my next note. Okay. <laughs> He packs up but calls Silas Bodnick and reminds him what he needs to be do to be a cooperative witness. And so Silas is kind of packing his stuff and great value Steven Seagal shows up. Yes. Walmart Steven Seagal is here. And he reminds Silas of his role. And both Walmart Steven Seagal and Jim give him the deadline of 7 p.m. Then Silas calls a woman that we do not see and tells her it's time to go. Yes. And there's a great line here where Jim refers to Silas as the concierge at the nut job hotel. Yes. And, oh no, excuse me. Silas calls Walmart Steven Seagal that. And Seagal is listening to the call. Silas calls Proofrock the next day and says like, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you more than you want. Yes. And we see him loading a gun. Mm-hmm. And the music's really good. The music's really note. good. Well, I like. I also like the line, like, Get over here, Tuffy. I'll make you employee in a month. How do I get there? If you're any good, you already know. And Jim pulls up at the house. And Jim pulls up at the house. Because Jim Proofrock's a badass who knows how to research... And find a guy's address before MapQuest. Boom, boom, boom. They have a discussion about... There are three birds on a wire. One of them decides to flap his wings and fly away. How many birds are there? Two. Ha! Nope! I knew it! There's three. Just because somebody decided to do something doesn't mean they done it. This is real dumb. Uh, That's my next note. Silas keeps calling Push hotter than it looks and mentions that heat will kill you in four hours. Yeah. Silas draws a gun on Jim and calls him a puppy. And then a man bursts in. We're going to call him Purgy. Yeah, he's got the purge mask. Yeah, he's wearing like a purge mask. He grabs a gun and then gasoline. And he throws gasoline all over the... Well, first he stabs Silas to death. Yes. He... Don't forget he stabs him to death. Oh, yeah. He gets stabbed by Purgy. Yes. Um, he throws the lighter. Jim does nothing. And yes. then Purgy goes, get out of... Pur- get out of Purge. Get out of Push James Proofrock. And then a cover of 
uh, Ring of Fire plays, yeah. which was awesome. And uh, Jim Proof Rock tries to get out of Dodge. Or push. Or push in this case. And then he's haunted by the voices of Mary, Silas Bodnick, Ira Glassman, and Purgy. He turns around, and I leave the first episode thinking he is too inconceivably stupid to live. So after seeing this murder and being told to leave, he tries to leave Push and turns around to get himself into more trouble. And that is the end of the first episode. It should be noted uh, that we were given some websites in this. We were given uh, pushtimes.com. And I I didn't catch it, but it's somewhere in there. There's a website for Watermark as well. Yes. And these were all real websites that existed mm-hmm. online in 2002. You can still find them on the Wayback Machine. You can still find them on the Wayback Machine. Because I did. Uh, they're not complete anymore. They're missing a few things. But uh, what you would do after you watched the show is you would go on and you could read the Push Times and get a little bit more story about what was going on in Push. It had information about Silas's death, the casino doing well, advertisements for Job's. Yeah. Like, all this stuff was there. And Push Toyota. And Push Toyota and the Sprint Store. Uh, On top of that, if you went to the Watermark page, it was like this evil website. And during the show, uh, Silas checks his voicemail, and you can see that his password is 4321, which if you picked up on that, you could then log into his voicemail from this website. Oh, that's fun. Right? So there's a lot of like little fun stuff like that going on that uh, you're missing if you're watching it now. Yeah. And oh, this is one really important thing I forgot to me- mention. Uh, the rules for this show, the, the way you win the game, is clues could appear at any time and in any place, really. Uh, clues could be found on the internet because you could find clues through the website hidden in the intro, and also on push times and stuff. But you didn't need the internet to find the clues. Right. Clues could appear any time during the runtime of the show. Yes. So there were actually clues in the commercial breaks. And unfortunately, the rips that we have do not have the commercials in it. No surprise, but all the clues were hidden in Sprint and Toyota commercials. That makes perfect sense. Yes. Uh, Episode two, The Black Box. My first note. Ah, shit. This is going to be a long episode of Stay Doomed. Yes. We get a previously on and Jim wakes up at the hotel. Yes. I'm not going to go over the previously on. Right, right, right. It's 7.07 a.m. and the landlady informs Jim we don't sleep past seven here. Again, the importance of a specific time. Yeah. Jim tells Grace he witnessed a murder. He's going to tell the local authorities and Ira seems very... Uh, consternated by that. Yes. The the one thing that he really got to see about this guy was he had a serpent tattoo on his forearm. Yes. So he's got that clue going for him. Holy Riverdale, Batman. And then Jim looks over and can see Mary undressing. She pulls down her shade and there's a message for Jim that says, meet me tonight at Slocum's. Slomans. Slomans, my bad. Slocum's was a bar near where I went to school. Um, It says Slocum's in my notes, too. Like, that was not a misspeak. That was a mistype. Then we get the the, uh, intro. And there is a website, 
dmvf.com. I catch this entirely on my own, yes. entirely legally by our internal rules, which were that I don't look stuff up. Yes. I'm allowed to use internet archives that line up with the air dates of the show. This this is the same website that appears in the, the first intro. And it confirms the $1,045,000 clue and hints to where the second clue is. Well... I would say that it's pretty blatant. It says what the second clue is, but I didn't know that when I looked at the website. Yeah, it says two colon television. Yes. I assumed it, but like in my notes, I have that it's a hint. Yeah. Because we hadn't watched the whole episode yet when I looked. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I pulled it up immediately on Internet Archive, so I didn't see it yet. Okay. Uh, So. We go back to the vault where we started in mm -hmm. the first episode. And there's a fast-talking, nervous bolo tie man being surrounded by three men in nice suits. Yes. They talk about the heat-sensitive camera. They talk about how much money was left in the vault. There's still $800,000 in the vault. Yeah. Only the money and an old Bible that had been in the vault for weeks. And the guys in the suits are like, oh, poopy. What do you mean a Bible's been stolen? Yeah. And... Then we cut to Jim Prufrock at the sheriff's office. I love this. There is a young deputy, and he goes, Hello. It must be Dawn. That's right. How'd you know? Because you look like the beginning of a new day. Oh. It's also on your coffee mug. It's on your mug. Way smoother than he is with Mary. <laughs> like, that line kind of works. Uh... Dawn will grow to be one of my favorite characters. The deputy Dawn makes me so happy. And like Ginger, and like every woman we've seen except the landlady, she is young and beautiful. Yes. She got them 2002 eyebrows, though. <laughs> uh, currently, the fashionable look is like a thicker eyebrow. In the early 2000s, it was called the sperm brow. Okay. That, like, very overplucked look that was very popular in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Um, there are still women to this... There are still women to this very day who can't grow their eyebrows back from the 2000s. <laughs> I... That sounds like I'm joking. But I am not. Well, you said it very... In a very joking manner. I, I, I was trying to sound like I'm telling a ghost story. Yes, that's they hilarious. To this very day. And... We see Sheriff Gaines, mm-hmm. and he ta- he and Dawn take Jim to the site of Silas Bodnick's murder. Yes. And then we see the three suit guys. Well, I want to I want to talk about what Gaines says. Is he's driving them to? He's driving Jim to where he claims he saw this murder, and Gaines is like, "I don't trust you. You might just be a prankster." And then they pull up, and the house is burned down, and Jim goes. Well, this part of my story is clearly true, or I'm one hell of a prankster. <laughs> did you catch who uh, the sheriff is? I did not. You would probably know him best from Robin Hood, Men in Tights, oh. as Little John. Oh. So yes, he's been around for a while. He was also in like My Wife and Kids as the neighbor and stuff like that. He's a great comic actor. Yeah, it's a little tough because our our rip was not the best quality. And unlike usual, where I will feel free to look stuff up, I did not look anything up at the show. That's why I have all the fun notes. Um, 
So it's the three same suit guys that were in the vault, and they clearly make Sheriff Gaines nervous. Yes. Uh, they, Jim notes he works in the Carson City office, so he does work in Nevada. Yes. Once the suit guys are like, we have jurisdiction, Gaines and Dawn are like, well, we're out. Yes. The, he asked what the jurisdiction is, and they say they're from the gaming division. Yeah. The gaming commission. The gaming commission, yes. Which would be a real powerful entity in Yeah, but they usually Nevada. don't investigate murders. No, they don't. <laughs> and uh, the suit men paw through the wreckage as soon as Dawn, Gaines, and Jim yes. leave to go get some Quiznos. Well, but before that happens, I, there's two quick things. Okay. One, the suits say this is clearly a suicide. So Silas stabbed himself and then burned his house down. As one does. Uh, and then the suits dismiss them. And Gaines is like, all right, let's go, Jim. And Dawn, like, adorably waves at them. Like, the, the way, like, a child waves goodbye on the school bus. <laughs> I Yeah, it reminds me of um, Adam Sandler waving. Yes, yes, yes. Like. <laughs> Boy. Yeah, cracked me up. Loved it. Yeah. So... The suit men paw through the wreckage, establish the Bible is missing and so is the money. Mm-hmm. And then we see a, a derelict man pushing a cart. And Jim kind of just stares at him. And then we go to Job's and the shivering man is still outside. Mm-hmm. And this is another scene that really reminded you of a point and click adventure. Yes. Uh, Jim sits down next to this man he's never met before and just like... Grills him. I'm going to be very clear so that you understand the stakes of lying to me, <laughs> if you choose to do so. <laughs> I work for the federal government. <laughs> lying to me is a federal crime. Did you know Silas Bodnick? Yeah. Oh, he chose intimidate instead of charm in his uh, dialogue tree. And Caleb actually says, he like rambles really quick. He's a liar. He's going to take it from me and take it from her. So I give it to him. He says it won't be illegal or nothing because you can't steal from yourself. And I said, doesn't sound right to me. And he said, do you want her to come by or not? So I give it to him. And she ain't come by yet. And if he's dead, how's she going to come by? I know he's lying to me. I ain't seen anything else. Which is such a point and click thing for a character to say. Yeah. Where it's just like, you've reached the end of my dialogue tree. Go click on some other things. Yes. Uh, it is very, very Grim Fandango. Yes. So we, we see that and we also find out that the cold man cannot regulate his body temperature. And he's just always cold. Yeah, that's his problem is like there's no way for him to maintain homeostasis. I think it might be how they phrased it. I don't. I didn't catch the word they used. But he's always cold, so like that's why he's in push. Thermostasis. Thermostasis. Yes. So he's always cold, and that's why he chose to live in Push Nevada, one of the hottest places. And he actually has like heaters. Yeah. And like coats and stuff, so he can stay warm. Uh, then Jim goes and talks to Job. And then he well he talks to BRB about his tattoos, because BRB has like a Marvin the Martian tattoo. Yes. I, I feel like there was a television clue somewhere in the tattoos that I might have missed. Yeah. But I think there was one. He is looking for someone with a snake tattoo. How very Riverdale. Yes. Yeah, a serpent tattoo is like the Southside Serpents, whatever. 
And the person with the serpent tattoo is the person we call Purgy. Yes. And he gets sent to the tattoo artist's trailer. Well, it's it's Job that sends him to the trailer. Yeah. And he says to him, like, listen, he's real touchy. He doesn't take appointments. He, you know, you just got to be cool with him. Don't, like, try to grill him. And he was like, okay, I'll go. Uh, Jim pulls up, and there's, like, a rope around, like, just, like, one of those, like, hanging barricade ropes. And Jim steps over it Mm -hmm. and walks up to this trailer, knocks on the door, and is just met with a gun in his face. I I want to talk a little bit about the trailer. Okay. Because it has a terrible flash tattoo skull on the door. And, like, the number 13, which is always, like, an arc tattoo. Flash tattoo meaning a tattoo that can be done quickly, not the DC superhero. Yes. Sorry, yeah, I assumed everyone knew what a flash tattoo was. Uh, I... Not everybody watched Ink Master. I'm also related to a tattoo artist. Yeah. So a flash tattoo is like a stock tattoo that can be done very quickly. Mm -hmm. It's when you go into a tattoo parlor, the ones on the walls. Yeah, those are the flash tattoos. Yeah, like the little ones that... There's certain holidays where I believe they actually do sales on flash tattoos. Yeah. It's a very... It's not a unique style... It's a tattoo you'll see on other people. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay, you want the Mercedes tattoo? All right, I'll give you the Mercedes-Benz logo. Let's go. Yeah. Oh, you want the Deathly Hallows symbol? Yep, got it. Can do it. (laughs) Yeah, basic. So, the tattooer just says, like, you can come in, but I have to do whatever, I get to do whatever I want. And Jim's like, nope, 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 (laughs) nope. Yeah. And then we cut to the cold guy. Whose name is Caleb Moore. Caleb, We yes. find that out a little bit later, but I'm going to just say it because it's easier than keep calling him the cold guy. Yeah. He's with Mary, who's being sexy. Yes. Because Fox. Yeah. Uh, no, because 2002. Yeah, so Mary finally came by. Mm-hmm. And she wants Caleb to tell her where he hid it. Yeah. But she keeps saying, whisper it to me, baby. Because she knows she's being watched. Yeah, like, I like it that way. Uh, so she... She takes him to bed and flirts for the benefit of whoever's listening. hmm And then cuffs him to the bed, wrist and ankle. Yes. She then... And then my next note is, oh, she's 100% gonna peace out. Yeah, he whispers something into her ear that we don't see, but the people monitoring it get... That it's blank head go cove or something. Mm-hmm. Serpent cliffs something. Uh, Clash of demon head. Clash of demon head. I, I think it is it. like demon he- demon flats or I something. I think it's demon. It is. It's demon flats. Uh, Clash of demon head. Yeah. So she, the people who are monitoring it aren't able to get the full location. But they're able to get that from it. So Mary runs off to go find uh, where... Caleb stashed everything, as do the suits. And uh, Caleb's going to shiver and be tied to the bed. Yep. And then we go to Sloman's that night. Mary is with someone. It's the guy who was pushing the cart earlier. Yes, the junk man. He used to be a town official, and now he's an artist. Mm -hmm. And they talk about the price of art. Jim gives the artist $5, and the artist will have to go get him. (laughs) He takes his, I don't have anything on me. I'll get you art later. And then Mary kind of friend zones Jim and goes, 
You didn't think I was interested. Jim falls into the trope of dogged nice guy hero takes the sex worker at face value. Yes. Not understanding that, like, she's literally doing her job. Right. She's in the friends business. It's her job to make you like her so that you pay her for her company. And Jim goes, there are bad people doing bad things, Mary. And I'm like, man, writing. Well, Mary then calls him out on the fact that he still wears his wedding ring. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Three very old cowboys then come in and they go through the elevator and Mary immediately grabs Jim and asks him to dance with her to distract him from the three cowboys. And she talks about how, like, Silas liked other girls. He was stealing money. And then confronts Jim about his wedding ring. Yes, I jumped to that. Your wife didn't treat you very well, did she, Jimmy? Because she always calls him Jimmy. Yes. At times. At other times, it was like being a child again. My next note. Nope, 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 (laughs) nope, nope. Anytime it's like, it was like being a child again about your romantic relationship... The only appropriate reaction is... Uh, Demon Head Flats, by the way. I have it later in my Demon notes. Head Flats. So Clash at Demon Head was much closer than I assumed. Uh, uh, the Suits watched the tape of Mary and the Cold Man. Yes, I gotta talk about this, because yes. this is very special. They try over and over again to uh, understand what Caleb is whispering. Yes. So they're like, turn it up. And they listen, and then they rewind it. And then they like turn it up more, and they rewind it, and they listen to it again. When they rewind it, he says television. Again. Oh. So like it's hidden. It's like television. I was like, that's kind of a neat place to hide that clue. The then we get another murder scene. Yes. The cold guy is cold. And a man comes into his room as the cold guy begs to be let out. Yeah. And it's Fishhook Willie from Escape the Night Season 3. Yes. And they back up a truck with a wood chipper. Yeah. Or essentially a snow machine. Yeah. And they just wood chip ice on him. Yeah, they just bury him in ice. And then we get a spinning camera on Caleb Moore as he dies of hypothermia. And then Monsters, Inc. is on VHS and DVD. <laughs> That's the only, like, clip from a commercial yeah, in this Yeah, it cuts to a commercial, and then, like, it cuts away. So Jim goes to investigate Demon Head Flats, and the suit guys have their men out investigating, and their men are yes. all in black, and Jim is in tan. Mm-hmm. And then there's a helicopter! And Jim runs from it as the copter go burr. Yeah. He falls like he's a prom queen in a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Jason Voorhees gonna get you, is my next note. Yeah, he gonna get you. And then he wakes up the boarding house the next day. Yeah. Because they they don't ever feel like ending these scenes. He no, just they wakes just, up. he just kind of wakes He responds. Up. Yeah, exactly, yeah. The landlady... Shows up at his last save point. Uh, the landlady offers him coffee, and then he asks for tea. But right before that, in the establishing shot... We see a woman on TV go, Three, where television is the word. Now. Yes. And on top of that is a little black box with the label television. Yes. This is where we're like, oh, television. Yeah, got it. Television. Jim asks for tea because he's a fussy douche. Mm-hmm. 
The clue is stupid. Television, this show is stupid. See, I disagree with you here. Because here's, here's the truth of the matter. Would you have thought that was stupid if you hadn't already figured out it was television from the other clues? Maybe. Because you didn't hear that he says television in the reversed audio. So, like, you already missed some of the clues leading up to it. I think it only seems obvious because you knew television was going to be the clue that showed up. Yeah. Okay. Uh, The show is still not winning me over at this point. Um... Jim looks sad, angst, 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 is my next two notes. He knocks on the door looking for Caleb Moore and finds Caleb's body. Frozen to his bed, dead, covered in ice chips. Yeah, he's still covered in ice. I actually have the note, how are there still ice chips? Because I heard, I I want to have to double check, but I believe roughly in about three hours and 49 minutes the heat can kill a man. Yes. Yeah, let's round up. We'll say four hours. In four hours, the heat can kill a man. But it can't melt the ice that is covering this man. And then we see Gaines and Dawn, the sheriff and his deputy. And the sheriff goes, you think this is a murder too? Looks like another suicide. I just look. Jim walks in, slips on the ice, and falls on top of the corpse. <laughs> and then they walk in, they're like another suicide. And he goes, I don't know. I thought maybe... Murder because of the handcuffs? (laughs) And then Gaines tells Jim to get, and Jim leaves like the sad puppy he is. Yes. Jim also now has his cell phone back. Yes. We don't see him get a charger. Yeah, we didn't see him go to the Sprint store and buy a new charger, but he gets one. Now he gets a cell phone back and a woman calls and it's his ex-wife? Darlene. Yes. Um, Darlene, do you need something? I just miss you. That's all. I thought you should know. I miss you. Mm -hmm. And then he hears a man's voice and Jim hangs up. So, like, he almost falls for whatever Darlene is pulling. And then he hangs up. Mm -hmm. We get more weird crooked shots of Jim. I I have the note of I haven't figured out the pattern of when these appear yet. It feels like there's a rhyme or reason to when we see these weird slant shots of Jim. Yeah, I don't have a, a, a clue why the camera is... What, what what dignifies a slanty shot and what dignifies a weird loud zoom? Yeah. It's like... And then the camera flies into something. Uh, flash tattoo, which is what I've called the tattoo artist, looks like dudes my best friend dated in high school. Yes. And Jim goes into the trailer and lets... He parks the car, steps over the rope. Yes. And goes in and basically agrees to let this man do whatever he wants to him. So soon, they are both shirtless and Jim is on his knees on a chair. It's a very sexually charged shot. And the only shot of the show I really like is they line up Jim's scream when the needle hits him with the music. Yes. And the music is still very good. Yeah. And Jim... uh, kind of is freaking out from the pain and Flash Tattoo gives him a piece of leather. Yeah. And says, like, bite this, it'll help. Yeah. And Jim goes, You know, it's about tastes funny. Yeah, it's a place with peyote. What? Don't. 
You're a real chatty Kathy, and I don't like it. What's this place look like a library? <clears throat> and then he tightens it on him. And like, because he gets real BDSM. Yeah. Because he like gags him with it. He's like, just bite down and let me do what I'm doing. And so we get a, a montage and we get first a flashback. Jim burning himself with a cigarette lighter as a child. Yeah. And he's with his father whose initials are AMP. And now I will say they read as map on the monogrammed handkerchief. Huh. I didn't th- I didn't think of that, but that's a good point. It's in the way that his middle initial or excuse me, his first initials in the middle larger. Yeah. And then MP. So it would read map. Hmm. But his initials are AMP. Well, his initials are actually A yeah, AMP. Yes. Because proof rock. Right. Yeah. And he actually says the, uh, you know, he can kill a man in four hours, but we proof rocks have always been able to handle the heat. Yes. Uh, you got to have a montage. This is the second montage this episode. You know, the last episode ended on a montage. Mm-hmm. Because uh, we get a kind of like a flat. This is the second like clip part of this episode, and we've only had two episodes to draw clips from. Yes. Now, I will say, episode two and three air back to back. Yes. So it is possible because the way that this was like recorded off the TV that technically by this point we're watching the beginning of episode three. So instead of it being a montage out of nowhere, this is the previously on. I I don't think that is yet. Oh, I'm just, okay. Just throwing it out there. So flash tattoo in this like peyote fueled state says, Oswald Wilkes is the man you're looking for. Mm -hmm. His soul is as twisted as the serpent on his arm. And then James wakes up in bed. Again, back to the spawn point, which then really adds another sexual charge to it. And we see that he wakes up with a giant badass tattoo across the back of his shoulders that says death and taxes. Yes, he's got death and taxes tattooed across his back. Which, like, let's talk about how Flash Tattoo did him a solid. Mm-hmm. Like, he could have put a giant dick butt back there. Yeah. This is, well, I don't know about dick butt in 19, or in 2002, but could have been a big pile of poop. Yeah, like, it could have been, you know, anything. Yeah. It could have been the Monstars from Space Jam. But the whole kind of point is that, like, he's an artist and he, like, sees your soul and then he puts it on your skin. So he knew that death and taxes is exactly what he needed on his back. Uh, and that's the end of episode two. And I think it's time that I reveal that uh, I thought Jim Prufrock was awesome. I thought he was so cool. And when I grew up, I wanted to be Jim Prufrock. And I semi, I semi accomplished that goal. But I remember... Because I was a junior in high school when this came out. Uh, I remember saying, that's how I'm going to get a tattoo. I'm going to go in there and just be like, do your thing. Whatever you feel is right, put it on my body. I thought that was so cool. And now I realize that's insane. Yeah. Because, like, not only is that stupid and insane, but the whole reason it works is that that guy had magic push Nevada powers to know what to put on your body. Yeah. Like, this. if I walked into random <laughs> tattoo artist place and I'm like, yo, just 
just go nuts and do what you want to do. They are not going to have my best interest in mind. No. But I, I thought that was the coolest idea. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to get a tattoo. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, just do whatever you want, man. I'm your canvas. That is not the story. Oh, my God. Hey, Grave Robbers. So uh, this is a different recording session. We took a little break after episode two. So here are the remaining two episodes of Push Nevada. Enjoy. It's our first three-part recording. Yes, yeah. We, we got a little tired, so we wanted to give you the best episode possible. So we're like, ah, let's take a break and we'll finish this up the next day. So it's the next day, and we're talking about episode three, The Color of Ellipses. Bah, bah, bah. So, I do just want to say, before we even start, you see the title, and you look at me and you go, I don't think I'm going to be able to figure this one out because the color's all ruined on this rip we're watching. And then you sat there for a moment and went, it's oranges, right? <laughs> to, in my defense, the, uh, the cold open, the color was really bad. And then when it flashed up the color of, I'm like, oh no. And then I realized the title treatment was an orange and yeah. the push times thing yeah, you had, had been about oranges. Yeah, you had been to pushtimes.com on the Wayback Machine earlier, and it just said, oranges everywhere. So I love that you were like, I'm, I just need to make this clear right now. I'm not going to figure it out because of how bad this rip is. I figured it out. It's orange, right? <laughs> and that's still not the funniest way I figured out a clue. No. Get, get excited for that. So uh, the destitute artist is... Picking up cans on the side of the hall, the side of the highway. Yes. And the guys in suits kind of write him off. A destitute simpleton, inconsequential. Yes. My next note, ain't we all? <laughs> yes. And then uh, they talk about grabbing some Coronas, and I go, twenty twenty one says let's not. Yeah, I wonder if that was a uh, an orange hint, because Coronas like. That's yeah. usually lime. Oh, I, I meant like the color of the beer. They are drinking like orange Gatorade. Yes. In this scene. So the entire time, the artist is listening to Jesus Radio. Yes. And we hear the phrase, knock and it shall be open to you. And the artist finds the Bible. Yes. And takes it. Because we had seen earlier that he was talking to Mary. So Mary got the information from Caleb. And then instead of getting it herself, tells the artist. So the artist goes and gets the Bible. Right. So that's, that's where we are right now in terms of where the Bible is. It's in the hands of this artist. Yes. And then we get the Grace Jim phone call where Jim asks Grace to pull up Oswald Wilkes's 1040s. Yes. The man with the serpent tattoo, formerly known as Purgy. And Grace fills him in on his ex called again. She wants a key to the house. Yes. He asks, how did she sound? And she says, sober. Yeah. Which clearly means that usually that's not how she sounds. He doesn't commit to giving his wife the key. And then we see uh, Silas Bodnick's funeral. Yes. We see BRB and his hot pinup wife. We see uh, Mary and she's wearing like an old timey fascinator. Right. In black. And at the same time, we get this very dark comedy moment outside of the funeral home of the two morticians trying to cremate Caleb Moore. Yes. And because he couldn't, he was always cold. They were like, yeah, 
He doesn't burn. And then they all just look and he's just laying there like surrounded by fire, not burning. I think we could then, based off of this, excuse the fact that the ice didn't melt because the idea would be that he kept the ice cold. Yeah. It's still kind of silly, though. I mean, I think this is a fun... Uh, this it, It's a rare fun moment in this. I think... I think this show is really funny. Okay. I think as a whole, this show is really funny. This is one of the funniest parts to me. Absolutely, this is one of the funniest parts. And anything Dawn does. So, Jim hands BRB's hot wife, Delilah, and Mary monogrammed handkerchiefs. He yeah. always carries three. You never know when one may come back to you. Mm-hmm. And he tries to get Mary's last name because he couldn't run her 1040s because... He didn't have her last name. And Grace is like, I can't run a search on Mary. Yeah, just, Jim. just check Mary's. I'm sure it'll come up. And she does not give him her last name because duh. Yeah. Because Mary's probably not her first name. Exactly. Based on her line of work. So we, we get another uh, cut back to our artist hobo friend listening to Bible radio. Mm-hmm. And... Jim is on his way and back out to Demon Head Flat and his car has a flat or a blowout or whatever. Yeah, something goes wrong. And we zoom in treacherously on his trunk and Jim freaks out at the prospect of getting his spare tire out of the trunk. Yes. And tells BRB he doesn't have one. BRB gives him a lift back to push and Delilah like lays on him. Yeah, it just sits on his lap and like kind of just dances. (laughs) And doesn't need to. Right. Like, the truck cab is big enough for the three of them to sit fairly normally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that it's clearly a choice. Yeah. And I noticed that all of his invoices that we do have a couple of shots on are of very low amounts of money. Right. Like, under five. Like, it looks like he's shipping two or five below one item at a time. Mm-hmm. So we go back to the sheriff's office and we see Dawn watching TV and Jim is arguing with Sheriff Gaines. Yes. And who calls out Jim and goes like, ah, that tattoo artist still use peyote to cut the pain? Because Jim is starting to sweat. Yes. And Jim is starting to like have peyote issues. Yeah, and again, Dawn, because Dawn is the best, goes, peyote? Want some water? So Dawn's being, like, cool about it and, like, oh, I know what it's like to be on peyote. You're probably thirsty, right? Uh, I also want... She's also really excited that Regis is on. Oh, yeah, she's big into Regis. Because, you know, uh, synergy. Well, uh, we did watch that uh, Ben Affleck then appears on Regis and Kelly to promote this show. So Regis was promoting it because he was in it. (laughs) I also want to point out that uh, Jim says something along the lines of Silas Bodnick was murdered. Caleb Moore was murdered. And the only two people who should be doing anything about it are watching some damn morning show. Boy, you have no idea what I watch on television. Which is a great line. (laughs) So he hears back from Grace. She ran everyone he's asked her to run. And neither of them exist. Neither Silas Bodnick nor Oswald Mm -hmm. Wilkes. And then he kind of brushes off like, 
uh, criminals don't file their taxes. Fine. And she goes, no, I ran them through the federal database. I did a 7C search for push. No one's filed an income tax return in 17 years. And a 7C search is apparently like kind of a big deal. Yeah. They, they kind of say it in a way that we, they would think that we know what a big deal it is. For it to be a 7C search. Right. But we were like, oh, I guess that's a big deal. Because they're acting like it's a big deal. (laughs) Uh, So no one has uh, found or no one has filed their taxes in 17 years. Yeah. Uh, We then cut back to our friends, the suits, who are trying to find this Bible. Oh, I wanted to put that. I have a note here that I I now have a theory that there is a time warp situation of some kind. Okay. Because uh, I just wanted to put that I had a theory there. Okay. And yeah, so the suit guys are bullying Orton, a new suit guy. Yeah, yeah, a suit in training who's not very good at being a suit yet. He's only been there for 10 months. Yeah. And this is why I said you asked me slightly too soon about the suit guys. Okay. Because this is when we get into like the affably evil aspect mm-hmm. of like, it is a job. Mm-hmm. Like, these guys are at work. Yes. Like, they're not nefarious, like, ooh, I'm a bad guy. Like, Orton is at work. Yeah. And he's kind of a dumbass. He says something like, why do we care so much about this one guy who they're listening to the audio for? And they play it back, and he mentions a book. And the, and the suits are like, a book that could be the mother load. Book. Bible. Book. Bible. It's a simple connection, Wharton. And that, among other reasons, is why my socks cost more than your suit. This is the scene that really starts to bring the suit guys into focus. Okay. Uh, That they are just, they're at work. Okay, for some reason, I always want to think of them as Cerberus. Because, I guess, because there's three of them, and they kind of all act the same way. But they clearly don't, because Orton's stupid. Orton's not one of the suits. He's the new guy. Ah. There's three suit guys, and, like, they all look at things, like, the same way. Like, there's a, there's a shot of, of a car going by, and they all turn and scan at it at the same time. And uh, there's a moment where, like, the phone rings, and the three of them answer on a cell phone. <laughs> and I was like, are they one entity? So I, I have these, this, like, Cerberus feeling from them, because that's a three-headed thing I can think of. Is that because our couch pillow is... We also have a couch pillow that's a Cerberus. Its heads are named Lawrence Mulligan, Marquis de Lafayette. Picture included in the YouTube version. Yay! So, Jim's running some more microfiche. Yes, this is where we see oranges everywhere as a headline included in the show. And we find out that Slowman's was a brothel, and it reopened as a slow dance bar, and Oswald Wilkes is in the featured picture. Yes. So then Jim goes to Sloman's. He asks for water and the bartender's like, go home. And then he asks after Oswald Wilkes. Yes. And the bartender kind of makes fun of Jim. Yes. He's like, the same thing kind of I did in the last episode where he dresses down Jim for not realizing that Mary is a sex worker and that she's going to say whatever she needs to say to make money. He goes, yeah, Silas was one of Mary's boyfriends, Job. Some wimpy government fellow from out of town. Well, I, I love the line read on this. Mm-hmm. Jim goes, she has a boyfriend. And the bartender goes, 
boyfriends. <laughs> like he turned into like a snake or something. I'm a snake. Does this setup remind you of The Shining? A little bit. This like very feel very much feels like The Shining to me. I mean, it's the classic. It's the classic slightly malevolent bartender. Yeah. So. We, we get this, and bartender says, like, oh, well... I remember my daddy's dying words to me, and I stick to him pretty good. What are those? Son, don't trust nothing that bleeds for seven days and don't die. I want to talk about this line. Okay. Because you were immediately like, ugh, not this. Uh, because if you didn't get it, the, that line usually means uh, don't trust women mm-hmm. because they have periods yeah. is basically the idea. However, someone else has been bleeding for days and not dying. Jim, because of the tattoo. Throughout this entire episode, you can see him bleeding through his shirt because his tattoo is all infected and gross. Yeah, it's only been a day or two though cuz he's still Uh we this he we will be on day 4. Yeah. I made a note of this. But when did he get the tattoo? He he 4 days ago. Okay. So he's cuz he's still coming down from the peyote so I assumed a lot of this was the next day. True, I understand that. I definitely have a note that it was 4 days for some reason so I, I feel like I think this is the fourth day he's been in push. Maybe. I think they do have day four. I just remember this was a big theory online that Jim will die in seven days because he's bleeding from the tattoo. So Well, that would have him dying on like day nine. He didn't day get nine the tattoo. of being in push, yeah, because he's... Okay. Because he didn't get the tattoo his first day in push. And those like day four, day five bugs are... From when he got to push. Because they do say like day four, September 19th or whatever. You're right. I'm bad at... Taking notes, as it turns out. But I wanted to bring And meanwhile, I still have my regular caliber of notes, despite our agreement of, well, you take yeah, my notes. Yeah, exactly. I still took all the notes. So Jim goes to Versailles, and we see BRB and his clipboard with his tiny shipments. Yes. And then we kind of go back to the hotel. Yeah, he goes back to the hotel. And, and the landlady makes fun of him for getting yes. a tattoo. She tends to him and says, last thing a woman wants to see back there is a slogan or another woman's name. Jim makes a comment about uh, his father would roll over in his grave if he knew about the tattoo. And he was 12 in 1986 when his dad died. Yes. 1986 is like the keystone year with push. Yes. My next note. Oh, dad was in on it. Somehow. And we find out that the landlady wasn't always a landlady, but she won't say what she used to do. She is maternal and kind toward Jim. And then picks up the handkerchief he still has, his third handkerchief, and compares it to the one she's been using on Jim's back, which belongs to his father. Yes. Never know when one of them will come back to you. Yes. And she says it out loud just in case you didn't get it. Yeah, so it is entirely possible that this is Jim's mother. Mm-hmm. But we don't know for sure. I'm not sure if we ever know for sure. Then Ira calls Jim, and Jim's like, I'm very sick. And Ira's a big old dork about it. And he's like, I'm sorry, but you should come in soon. 
Listen, I'm overworked. It's hot. I'm on peyote. My back's infected. I'm gonna lay down for a while. It would have been a lot. Oh. It would have been a lot cooler if he'd called in on peyote. <laughs> Jim's out sick with what peyote? Uh, Grace apparently broke rules slash laws, and Jim was not supposed to go to push. And this is being used as his PTO. Like, these are his personal days. <laughs> yeah, this is Ira being, like, a big nerd and punishing him. It's like, oh, you're not coming back? Well, you know what? You just used your vacation days. And you're going to run out of those. And then, well, then that's unexcused at absences. Ooh, and that might lead to a write-up. Ooh, and then too many write-ups. You might get, you might get terminated. It's like, that's so many steps. <laughs> just say, get back or you're fired. <laughs> So we get to, uh, we have a couple other, like, little scenes that don't mean much, of, like, Job teasing uh, Jim about the tattoo. Yes. We do establish that when Ira's on the phone with Jim, the suit guys are standing over him again. Mm-hmm. And then he gets another call from Grace. Yes. Grace is in Jim's house <laughs> with his ex-wife, Darlene. Yes. Who is moving furniture. <laughs> and... This is so funny to me because like, she's like, yeah, I just thought it'd be better if I was here while she was doing whatever she's doing. And for some reason, I immediately think, oh, they're a couple. I don't know why I immediately was like, oh, no. Grace and Jim's wife are clearly a couple. I, I think it's like Gotham PTSD. Maybe. When like <laughs> we find out that Montoya and Barbara Keene used to sleep together. It's the only because re- this scene is lit and shot similarly to that. Yeah, it is. You're right. And uh, then Jim's like, "Put my ex-wife on the no, phone." No, no. Darlene begs for the phone. Oh, Darlene begs for the yeah, phone. Yeah, it's the only time this show even flirts with passing Bechdel. That's what I wanted to bring up. <laughs> is the only time two female characters talk directly to each other. It's Darlene begging Grace for her cell phone to talk to her husband. Yes. So it doesn't quite, because it is. they do talk about a man. And this is intercut with the suit guys bothering a man who has an orange. You know, yes. Oranges. Oh, well, that's uh, Sloan, I believe. That's the owner of uh, Sloman's. Yeah. He is an orange. And he's just he's just eating an orange. Because <laughs> they're mad. Because ma- clue. Cause, and they're mad about Oswald Wilkes being sent as the assassin. Because they're like, next time you send an assassin, don't pick one with an obvious tattoo. Or tell him to wear sleeves. <laughs> wear sleeves. But I think all of this is so funny. It's like... Because I know that there's like so much comparison that you make to uh, Twin Peaks here. Yeah. I kind of love the idea of it's like, what if Twin Peaks, but everyone's really bad at it? I mean... <laughs> Like, that's really funny to me. Twin Peaks, but everyone's really bad at it, is done better 15 years later and called Riverdale. <laughs> All right. But Jim is upset with Darlene, and this is kind of intercut with the realization of a sniper about to kill Jim. Yes. And then... And it's Oswald. He has the tattoo. Yeah. And Oswald gets called off. As Jim hangs up on Darlene, who has been begging him to come home. Yes. Uh, Jim drives around to another thinking montage. And then... You need a montage. Because they could not fill up 43 minutes without putting in a montage in every episode. Then he goes to the Versailles. We also now know that Jim's middle name starts with an A. 
Jim is standing in the middle of the, he's standing in the middle of the casino floor for what is apparently hours. Mm-hmm. And when the director of the casino confronts him about it, he admits he's counting cards, factoring craps, and he's like, your casino pays out 62% of the time. Yeah, and the way it's shot is like he's standing there thinking, and the suits are watching. They go, there's no way he sees it. And then he pulls this guy into the back room. Jim's like, you pay out 65% of the time. I've run the algorithms. Sometimes it's around 80 and the suits are like, he sees it. It's like, did you think it was going to be hard to spot everyone winning? <laughs> uh, Jim then does this real dumb thing. Fancy that. Uh, when confronting the manager of the casino, he calls Silas Bodnick a stump dumb pawn, points out there's something wrrong with this town, drink some water, because he's still in peyote. He points out that he needs to go home. My job is in jeopardy. My marriage is in a precarious position. Well, going home now seems like a very good idea then. That's because you have the misconception that you're getting off scot-free. Am I going home? Yes. Has the Versailles seen the last of me? That is an unequivocal no. I'm filing a full report with the IRS the Nevada Gaming Commission, and the Department of Justice. I can assure you, Mr. Stennis, that when I return, I will bring my own law enforcement, my own investigators, my own accountants. Mr. Stennis, you tell whoever it is that you work for that I'm going to take this town apart, number by number, ledger by ledger. You sly dog, you've got me monologuing. (laughs) You've been monologued for a while. But also broadcasts all of his next moves. Yes, and turns and at the end looks down the camera and says like brick by brick. So he's like, oh, you know you're being watched right now. What are you doing? Well, you're in a casino manager's office. You're being, there's cameras. I think they're in a kitchen. Anywhere in a casino. (laughs) Like casinos are heavily, have you never watched an Ocean's Eleven? The point I'm saying is the fact that he looks directly at the camera means he gave that monologue knowing that everyone was going to see it. So he's like, yeah, this is the plan. You have a few days to prepare before I come back. So then uh, Jim finds, gets into his car and finds his own handkerchief with a treasure map on it. So he goes back to push. Uh, we see a bug for a show called That Was Then, which only ran two episodes, so maybe we'll watch yeah. that later. Yeah, we, we added that to the list. Uh, he asks to, he goes to the crematorium, steals a shovel. Oh, look, we got a badass over here with a whole shovel. <laughs> and then he goes, follows the map, and... You skipped over one of the funniest parts. Okay. He rolls up, and there's also this, like, real serious scene where they're, like, looking at Caleb not burning, and someone in Spanish is like, you know, they believe that your body is still, you're still in your body just waiting to be burned. Oh, yeah, they talk about, like, the beliefs of Aboriginal tribes. Yeah, it's, like, this real kind of, like, heavy, like, creepy scene. Very, like, Poe-type horror. But he shows up and he's like, hey, can I borrow one of your shovels? And they're like, yeah, I mean, Caleb won't burn. And then they, like, are looking at him not burning. And then he just poofs away. 
because it like the fire finally takes and he's gone in like an instant. And the two grave diggers go, Oh, well, we're gonna need our shovels now. And Jim runs away. That's so funny. <laughs> like he was like, wait, we need the shovels. We have to there's nothing there to bury. It all poofed away. All of this cracks me up. So Jim follows the map and starts digging. And Gaines and Dawn follow him. Yes. And Jim finds a body, and it's Oswald Wilkes. And then I think we must get a spinny camera effect, because I actually put, like, the show is nauseating to watch. Yes. Oh, because then Jim has a nightmare that he's in the crematorium. Yes. Because he's still on peyote. he's still on peyote. (laughs) And then he wakes up from his nightmare in Dawn's face. In Dawn, like... (laughs) Jim wakes up screaming, and Dawn just pops up and is like, My goodness, I haven't heard a scream like that since Cujo locked on to Mr. Trenton's privates. I went through, because I have this now in 1986, because they also mentioned Quiznos in this episode. Quiznos starts in 81, Cujo is a movie that came out in 83, so... These are all good, like, picks by you. Everything is in the, or everything is pre-85-86. Turns out Jim has a super fever because he's, you know, peyote. And he's also being charged with Oswald's murder. Yes. He's also under a super orange blanket. Because clues. Oh, yeah. So that that's the end of that episode. Yep. Episode four. Episode four, storybook hero. Uh, we get a previously on and then uh, we get Jim asleep in jail again. Yes. And he's crying in a trunk. So clearly this, like... Yeah. This thing he flashed back to in the previous episode, we see him freaking out in a car trunk. They're setting up that he has a problem with car trunks. They didn't bother to do that in the first two episodes, which I think is a bit lazy. Yes. But they do in these episodes. Uh, Gaines pokes him awake and tells Jim that his lawyer is here. (laughs) And they're not only going to pin... Oswald Wilkes' murder on him, but they're going to pin the murders of Silas Bodnick and Caleb Moore, which were previously ruled suicides, but now they're, now that there's a patsy, homicides. Mm-hmm. And Jim's lawyer is Pete, the public defender. <laughs> Just a guy, and he's like staring at a fly. Yeah, it's a very Simpsons-esque lawyer. Um, and then he calls Grace, and he doesn't get Grace, he gets Myrna. Yeah. Uh, Myrna is this older, like, the other secretary trope. Yes. Like, there's either the hot young secretary who's in love with her boss, Mm -hmm. or there's, like, the staunch older secretary. Yeah, semi-incompetent because technology's hard. I didn't get the impression she was incompetent. Oh, she's super incompetent because, like, in the middle of the call, she's just like, I got the connection, and makes them hang up. Which I guess could also be her being evil. I took that as intentional. Oh, okay. So, Grace is out and we don't know why. Uh, Real quick, because this is an important moment for this. When he calls the office uh, and uh, when Grace doesn't pick up, he's confused. So he looks at his phone to make sure the number's correct. And they show you the phone number on screen. Yeah. That was a real phone number. Of course it was. So you could actually call and get to the uh, Carson City uh, IRS department, which was set up by the show, and get information there. 
And then Jim says, uh, connect me with Ira Glassman, extension 1444. If you then punch that in, then you got to Ira. And there were reports that some people talked to the actor. And like you would have a brief interaction with him that was like unscripted. Oh, that's weird. It like you would end up doing a brief improv scene with Ira Glassman. With, with Ira Glassman before he was like, so yeah, I, I got interviewed by Ira Glass. Men. Men. <laughs> at one point in my life, but yeah, the, the, all this stuff was like real things that they had set up, which was kind of cool. Yeah, Ira uh, promises to help Jim get out of there, but says the IRS does not have the nine hundred thousand dollars that Jim would need for bail. Right. So then we get our cold open. Yeah. There's the phrase, you are being audited, Enoch. Yes. And then we see a few more things. We see Tixiv Tur. Mm-hmm. The name Enoch appears again. Yes. And then the title is Storybook Hero. Yes. So uh, Enoch was another website. At, yes. Which was supposed to be basically the go-between between us as the players and the show. Enoch was a writer on the Push Times, which you could find on mm-hmm. if you went to the Push Times. And basically, Enoch would feed us information if we provided him with information. So he would be like, we want to get information about Ira Glassman. Well, we would call and talk to him and then, be, and then tell Enoch, like, yo, we found this out. And then Enoch would be like, that makes sense. Here's what I found. So there was this, like, relationship that you had with Enoch as a player of Push Nevada. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to reveal this now, which you figured out eventually, but not right away. Uh, Tixit Tan is a cipher for Peter Pan. Yep. Uh, There will be many clues that we will go through that reveal that Peter Pan is, in fact, the answer. And I will tell you uh, how Laura interpreted them. (laughs) So then we see, we meet Jameson Jones... He is the lawyer that Ira has sent for Jim. Yes. Uh, And the lawyer demands that he speak to his client in private. And the sergeant goes, now hold on a minute. Your office will do. Now hold on a minute. It's right over there. Slays me. The cops slay me in this. Uh, Jones, I mean... The two cops being bumbling idiots is very Shakespearean. Yes. But very Jones, dogberry. Yes. And Jones does this like early 2000s thing where he is smart and therefore he speaks in an extremely sesquipedalian manner. Mm-hmm. He uses unnecessarily large words to get his points across. Yes. He's trying to figure out, he believes Jim, but he's trying to get all the information he can. So he's trying to get who sent the facts. I also have the theory that I'm like, the suits are figuring out what Jim knows through Jameson Jones. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense, too. I also noticed something here that pops up. Liz Vassy gets an and credit here. And credits mean a lot in TV. Oh, yeah. We see and Liz Vassy as Dawn. Yeah. Which I found interesting enough to write down. Yes. So they know... That either Delilah or Mary had to set up Jim. Yes, because it was written on Jim. The map that led to Oswald was written on Jim's hanky. And it's pretty obvious which one of them it would be. 
Because it doesn't seem like some like even Jim admits that it didn't seem like something Delilah would do. Yeah, what? Well, and we also then see a scene with Delilah. Yes, Delilah is crying in the kitchen as she microwaves some gravy, yeah. holding a white handkerchief. Yes, I wonder whose that could have been. And she brings it out, and she's clearly like play acting this perfect Stepford wife. Yes, but she's miserable, and she talks about wanting to go to correspondence school. Mm-hmm. Which used to be a big thing. Before online classes, there was correspondence school. Oh, okay. I wasn't familiar with this. Yeah, it would be how you would take classes. You would, like, mail in your work, and they would mail you your work. hmm And we see 9.15 tick closer. Yes. And we watch as BRB loses interest as the clock strokes 9.15 in what she's saying. Mm-hmm. Immediately hits on her. And then, in something unheard of in prime yeah. time... He goes under the table and there's implied cunnilingus. Yeah. How about that? In like a TV 14 show. Mm-hmm. In 2002 on network. Yeah. How about that, right? So I like I was kind of like, whoa. Yeah. This was like real pre-Game of Thrones, y'all. Uh, then we see another tropey, tropey, trope, 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 trope. Uh, everything Mary does in the show is trope, trope, trope. We see her doing makeup over a black eye. Trope, 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 yes. trope. And, oh, God, my next note is literally trope, 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 trope. <laughs> I figured. Um, Mr. Sloman is in his office, and Mary has to go talk to Sloman. Yes. And it's the recording of Mary and Bodnick considering running away to Mexico together. Yes. And then Sloman tells his assistant to close the door as... He threatens and menaces an apologetic, terrified Mary. Yeah. I, I want to ask you this question because rem- there's a specific moment where he's playing the recording and then he stops it and he goes, I have more, but you get the gist. Did this exact scene happen in Murder in a Small Town X? I don't this remember. This feels so familiar where it's just like someone playing a recording and being like, this is what you get. I fe- It felt very much like who ended up being the killer in A Murder in a Small Town X, that character. Mm-hmm. And they do kind of look the same. Yeah, I'm not sure. Really, the God's honest truth is this is a trope. A trope, yeah, maybe. Oh, yeah, this has appeared in tons of media across time. That makes sense. And Gaines announces that Proofrock is being moved. Yes. Uh, but before that, about this trope scene, there's one more very important thing. Okay. On the desk is a stuffed alligator and an alarm clock. This is, of course, a reference to the alligator that takes Captain Hook's hand. Laura does not notice this. I do not. So then Gaines announces Proofrock being moved. Jones is indignant. And we find out it's a four-hour drive, which will kill a man in four hours. They're actually going to drive through the Valley of Fire. And I sure bet he gets there uneventfully and nothing happens. Heard you're a tax man. Are you good with numbers? Do you know how to play chess? Uh, the criminals are bored and play chess through Jim. Yes. They, they mentally keep track of the pieces yeah. as they play chess. And I did not write the chess moves down because I genuinely don't care. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, it was too much to write down. And I didn't. Well, you can't play chess while you go to prison through the Valley of Fire, then. Cool. (laughs) Um, The only interested thing is that there's a point where the king could have been in jeopardy. 
Yeah. And they're and Jim points it out, and the prisoner goes, "Excuse me, <clears throat> something doesn't make sense. You had an opportunity to put my king in jeopardy, but you didn't. You're going for my queen. We told you the rules, right? We start the game in the van, we finish in the big house, right?" Once we get to the pen, we don't care about the king. We far more interested in cornering the white bitch. Oh, my next note is oh this trope. <laughs> the, the old scare him with chess trope. No, just the like. I this is one of very few people of color we've seen in this show mm-hmm. and he's a big scary black man like yes. it's a very it, it's kind of a lazy trope it is and like don't get me wrong it is a it's a lazy trope this is one of the funniest things in the world to me of like cuz it's two guys it's like this big black guy and then the other guy i guess is Hispanic in some way, maybe? I don't know. We don't have a good rip. But he's... Jim is seated in between them. And then... Uh, Jim will give a move, and then the other two will, like, alternate back and forth moving yeah. the other pieces. Which means, like, there's a conversation between these two men, like, hey, when we get a new guy, we're gonna have sex with him. No, 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 no. That's too easy. First, we're going to play chess with him. I was like, well, how chess is a two-player game. I was like, we'll alternate back and forth. That's how good we are at chess <laughs> and taking advantage of new prisoners is that we know each other so well, we know the best moves as a team playing chess. And then we'll have sex with him. <laughs> Just like all of this happening is so ridiculous to me that you can't I can't take anything seriously at this point. And I just I think it's hilarious that someone sat down and wrote this scene. It's real dumb. It's so dumb. Anyway, Proofrock makes bail, so he's allowed to write up front now. <laughs> the, the guy's like, hey, you can write up front. Unless you want to stay back here. No. And Jim like looks at the two guys he's with, and there's almost a moment where he's like well, I'm in the middle of playing chess. <laughs> but no, he, he rides up front. And then we go back to the sheriff's office. Don gives him his stuff back, but the handkerchief is missing. Mm-hmm. And Jones asks Jim who paid his bail. And Joan thought Jim thought it was his lawyer. Yeah. And then Jim gets an ankle bracelet. I don't want you flying away like Tinkerbell. A reference I don't even write down. No. Laura does not mention this. I mentioned it to her later. She does not get this clue. No, I don't even write it down. Uh, uh, and now I at least have... Okay, at least he makes sense why he can't leave Push now. Yes. And then Grace... Then we see Grace shopping. And it's strongly implied she's at like a jewelry or lingerie store. Yes. Where she's a personal relationship with Jason the clerk. Yes. These would both look lovely in your collection. And she gets a phone call. He's Mr. Proofrock in her phone. Yes. You know, she's good enough to have a key to his house, <laughs> supposed to sell, do his cell phone charger, and write his alimony checks, but he's Mr. Proofrock <laughs> in her phone. Like, no, you're on first name terms then, dear. Uh, we find out that Grace was suspended for running the C7. And... 
Proofrock is like, I need you to find the bail agent, Phineas Cobb, to find out who made my bail. And she's like, I can't do anything in official capacity. I'll be terminated. I'll do it anyway for you. And he goes, Grace, I don't know who I can trust except for you. It's you and me now. You know, your manipulative boss <laughs> who is chasing after lots of women who aren't you. Yes. He sucks. And then Grace looks at Jason and goes, oh, hell with it. I'll take both. And they're guns. <laughs> She's given two pistols. Oh, it's great. It's great. I also want to say, again, our rip is not that good. Mm-hmm. I think Jim's wife is there. Like, I think I saw her standing in the background. I could be wrong, but I was definitely like, she looks familiar. Which would be funny, because then it implies Grace is going to just shoot Darlene. Or maybe they're like, here's your gun. I have mine. We're Charlie's Angels now. We're like Thelma and Louise. Then we meet the greatest character in this TV show. Here's when we meet Eunice Blackwell. Eunice? The coroner. Oh, who is yeah. a long cigarette holder a la Cruella de Vil and she's drinking a martini. Mm-hmm. And so Jim comes in to see Oswald's body. He doesn't want to talk to you right now. He's not saying he killed him. He's saying if not for you, he'd be elsewhere drinking a cold one. <laughs> and I'm like, she's the best. Yeah, so she's like a psychic who works in the morgue, which is the only place in Push that's open 24-7. Yes. And she's just kind of like chatting it up with all the dead bodies around her. And we find out there were lots of deaths in 1984 and very few in 85. In 84, there were eight copycat suicides in one week and a lot of accidents. And then we find out a town officials went to work one day and his wife and kids went up in an explosion. Mm -hmm. This is Shadrach. The artist. Oh, I didn't catch that that was his family. Yes. Oh, interesting. And we find out Oswald died at 10.15 on the dot instantly from one shovel hit. Mm-hmm. And we know that Jim stole a shovel. And then I have the note of, ooh, one hour after everybody gets down. <laughs> yeah. So Jim thinks this is great news. Because Jim was on the casino floor at 10.15. Yeah, doing his, like, Rain Man calculations. And the manager pretends not to know who Jim is, which shows you that the tapes will clearly be missing or faked. Yes. Uh, They are like, let's talk in private, and they end up going to, like, the theater? And there's someone, there's a ventriloquist, like, rehearsing their act, and they're just like... Uh Laura does not pick up on any of this. Nope, sure don't. So, the tapes are doctored. Like, at one point we see a woman turn and put her hand out, clearly touching the space where Jim had been standing. And Joan says, like, I believe you, but a jury won't. And then we see the original tapes get thrown in a crematorium. Yes. So then Jim sees, it's late afternoon, and Jim sees a bunch of families play out the exact same scenario. Beep, beep. Hey, Dad. Hey, Sport. Yes. And three or four families play out that exact scenario. Yes, this feels very eerie Indiana. Because there was a big part of eerie Indiana where, like, everyone, all the families are synchronized. And then Delilah runs after him and returns his handkerchief. And she says, like, I believe in you. And then she kisses her hand and presses it to Proofrock's cheek. 
I'm now having a theory there's something off with the women. Like, not off with the women, but, like, that the women are not here on their own will. Okay. Because the landlady doesn't seem thrilled about her lot in life. Mary was clearly trying to leave. Delilah clearly is not happy with her lot in life. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the Phineas Cobb bail agency. And we get a very weirdly shot scene of Grace sitting on the desk, stroking her gun like, I just got suspended at work. Can one make bail arrangements preemptively? I'm an organized woman, and I like to set my affairs in order. And she's clearly making Cobb very nervous. Yeah. And this is the scene where I was like, Eunice and Grace, only two characters I'm invested in as people. (laughs) Grace is wonderful. And, oh, my next note is literally Grace and Eunice are the only two people I care about. <laughs> and then it cuts away. And we go to Sloman's again. Yes. And it's proof Rock immediately gets Mary's client to go away. Because Mary's always trying to talk to a client. She's made less money this week, I swear to God. <laughs> proof Rock's costing her bank. And, uh, and bangs. Jokes. Um... <laughs> Jim accuses Mary of setting him up. She's covered in bruises and denies any wrongdoing. He wants to help her. No one can help me, Jim. It's the very well-intentioned PI femme fatale scene we've seen thousands of times. Mm -hmm. Uh, God, write an original freaking concept is my next note. And then Sloman shows up and Jimmy, in his fury, is going to go confront Sloman about mistreating Mary. Mary and Jimmy, it occurs to me at this point, are the leads in Reefer Madness. Huh. And I was like, ah! It's peyote madness. Proofrock accuses Sloman of all the crimes. Mm-hmm. Sloman's a golfer. Sloman calls Proofrock a bitch. Yes, he's cornered the white bitch. And then I joke, I'm like, oh, 2002, LOL, we're calling a man a bitch is the edgiest thing you can do on TV. Well, I mean, if you watch Monday Night Raw, it's the edgiest thing you can do today. Uh, Sloman roughs Jim up and then throws him out. And then Jim gives a badass boast he has no way of backing up in any fashion. Again. This this is a terrible speech. I liked his first speech where he was talking about being a good man because he was a tax man. This one is really bad. Yeah, I I don't even have it written down. I think the word aspered is used. Yes, I do remember the Asperger. Because uh, I have the note Asperger question mark. I'll play a clip and you tell me. Is the word Asperger being used? That Asperger comes back sniffing around my operation. I'll step on him. The men in suits take a call from Sloman and they discuss all the problems with regarding Jim Proofrock. Somebody bailed him out. Somebody sent him the facts. And my theory right now is... Shadrach is a very strong suspect to be this person who is helping him on the inside. Yeah. Uh, The artist. And then we establish that they are keeping Jim alive to find out who his mole is in Push. Yes. Something Jim himself doesn't even know. And then they hang up the phone and the suit guys look at each other and go, Dwight is getting ambitious. Mm -hmm. Dwight is Sloman. Yeah, Dwight Sloman. We then go to the graveyard, and Mary goes to the graveyard, pays off the caretaker who has dug up a grave for her. The Bible? Could be. Hallelujah. Thanks. Thank you, Orton. You dumb noob. (laughs) Um, It made me happy, because I like... Orton is my third favorite character. (laughs) 
And then Proofrock is like kind of trying to find Mary. And then he gets tased by yes. a shadowy figure. Shadowy figure tases him and throws him in the trunk. Yes. And then this, we cut back to Mary in the graveyard and she fi- realizes the Bible is missing, but takes some of the money that's in the casket. Because the ca- there's still money, but the Bible is missing. Yes. And the suit guys are like, whatever, let her have the money. The Bible's the greater risk. And then we see a creepy music box. And I was like, oh, good, a creepy music box. No one's ever had one of those. Yes. And so we- Laura says that, and I immediately start writing down music box as a clue. She's go- she's not going to figure it out this episode. Okay, and then she's I have... She's not going to figure it out this episode. Shadrach has the Bible and blows on it in his little hobo tent. And then I scream... Oh my god, it's playing I Won't Grow Up from Peter Pan the Musical. Yes. And you just look at me and go, that's the clue you figured out? Yes. So after them yelling Tinkerbell, Captain Hook, Alligators, Pixie Dust, none of that. A music box, not even like a high quality version, tinkering out I Won't Grow Up makes Laura scream, oh, it's Peter Pan. clues and one esoteric a-hole clue and which one does your girl get it on yeah so laura figures this out uh we do see that uh there there's some sort of like punctured holes in the pages of the bible yeah as uh the artist is like holding it up to a light and just like looking at the shadow so we don't know what the bible does but it clearly has some sort of like punch hole information on it yeah uh, Jim is then thrown out of the trunk. And a female voice goes, who are you? Who do you work for? And Jim tells the truth and gets tased. Yeah. And then you hear, the truth will set you free, Jimbo. And the only other person to call him Jimbo is... <gasps> Jim pick- Jim immediately figures out and he goes, Dawn? <laughs> it's Deputy Dawn. It's Deputy Dawn. Who looks at him uh, very uncomfortable and goes... Who are you, Jim Proofrock? And that is the end of episode four. Yes. So that's uh, that's what we've covered so far. We will cover the rest uh, in part two of this. But I want to get some impressions from Laura real quick. First, what do you think of just the game? Uh, the game, I- I'm clearly missing a lot of the game. Yes, you are. So, eh. I mean, the game was meant to be able to be solved without all the extra stuff Yeah, online. but it feels like I don't get any of the fun parts of the game. You're figuring it out still, though, which I think is interesting. So, uh, the game is okay. Like, okay. I don't... I feel like I'm missing so much not getting the full experience that I'm just like, it's not that great. Gotcha. And what, what do you think of the show so far? Uh, not great, Bob. Well, there's one thing I do want to say, because there's one piece of criticism that you keep giving the show, Mm -hmm. and that is Jim Prufrock. Is dumb! He's stupid! He's a dumb, stupid man! Yes. This is very much on purpose, because it's very important for the experience that we are smarter than Jim. 
because we feel like we're solving it. And Jim is supposed to be our hero and we're watching it going like, Jim, please don't screw this up for us because we're figuring this out and you're going to go get yourself killed and then what are we going to do? That that's part of the, the charm of this is that he needs to be dumber than us so that we feel motivated and smart when we do things. Yeah, I think it's hard because, again, like, I'm not watching this the way it was intended to be watched. No. So, yeah. But that's going to do it for this episode of uh, Stay Doomed. Join us next week for the epic conclusion of Push Nevada. Uh, Where can people find us? You can email us at the Stay Doomed Show at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at Stay Doomed. And if you are super excited to hear the story that I have cooked up next week, give me your predictions of what it is. I'm at Plus Two Comedy. If you're really good at missing obvious clues and then catching the most subtle clue in a thing, I'm at Sprocket League. Until next time, stay doomed.